Hi, I'm Adam Mazzarello and we're back with the Oxford International Relations Society's Beacon podcast. Today I have with me Matteo Simonou, he's the Marie Curie researcher at the University of Oxford. Um, he's based at the Faculty of Oriental Studies in St Anthony's College and his area of expertise includes Syria, Lebanon and Israel. Today we're going to have quite a broad-ranging discussion about Syria and um, Lebanon. So Matteo, just to start, in light of what we've seen this week with the bombardment of Eastern Ghouta and the UN Security Council's resolution um, for a ceasefire in Eastern Ghouta, what's your, why do you think the UN has proved so weak and ineffective up until now in the Syrian conflict in creating security for the residents of, of towns like Eastern Ghouta? So good afternoon first. Thank Hi. you very, very much for your invitation. I'm really happy to be here with uh, with you. So yeah, of course, when we when we look at the past seven years and the Syrian conflict, one of the most striking thing uh, that comes to, to our minds and also to generally speaking is that the United Nations and most specifically the Security Council is literally ineffective in dealing with the Syrian conflict, finding solution, uh, the outcome of the conflict, uh, finding safe haven for the refugees, or even more generally speaking, finding, uh, uh, reaching an agreement or finding uh, peace. Over the past few years, by the way, uh, there has been quite an important list of Syrian, uh, of sorry, uh, United Nations officials who resigned uh, out of frustration or incapacity of finding that kind of solution. Um, they basically resigned because they could not find meaningful progresses uh, in the Syrian conflict. Um, so there is this impression that the UN is ineffective, and actually it is. Um, there has been some attempt to find solution, the Kofi Annan uh, plan, uh, also some United Nations supervision mission in Syria, but also uh, an OPCW uh, United Nations mission on, on the search for chemical weapons. Still, uh, the problem is that a lot of resolutions were adopted, uh, but majority of them remained at letters. Um, and this is, the, the, the how can we explain this? It's actually quite simple. Uh, when the Security Council is unified, uh, it, can do, it can do something, it can act and it can find solution. But when it's not, it's impossible. You, the, 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 most of the, the, the proposal for resolution will uh, become dead end. Uh, so in, in case of Syria, it's very simple. All proposition, proposals for, uh, for resolution were vetoed. They were generally vetoed by the Russians or by China. Um, essentially because the Russians, and behind them China, and also, as a matter of fact, Russia, Iran, are supporting the Syrian regime. So all resolutions that uh, are perceived as a threat to the Syrian regime, or that could threaten the Syrian regime, are vetoed by, uh, by Russia, and sometimes also uh, by, uh, by China. Uh, you mentioned in your question the last resolutions, the 2 4 uh, 01, which is enabling humanitarian aid uh, delivery. It's really interesting. So, first, the resolution does not apply to any form of Salafi jihadist group. So, of course, it does not apply to ISIS. But then, uh, the difficulty here, all the, it's all, all, the, all the time the same, but the difficulty will be to define who are the Salafi jihadist group. Uh, can we include uh, the former uh, Jobat al Nusra? It is being included, of course, but um, so that's why we have groups like Jabhat al-Nusra and Tahrir al-Sham, al etc. So that's the first thing is who is being included or which group are being included in the resolution. Second thing, which is, uh, you mentioned al Shaqiyah, which is the, the, the polarization point of the resolution, but actually the resolution mentioned the Ruta, of course, Ruta al-Sharqiyah, which is uh, the oriental um, forest of Damascus, very, very big space uh, where people, which is being besieged, uh, which has been besieged for the past four years now, uh, but also the Yarmouk camp, uh, in, in which you have basically the same, uh, same prosperography, same people living in there, uh, but also Fu'a and Kefraya, 
which are two cities, Shia cities, besieged by, uh, by the, the Syrian opposition or the Syrian uh, mobilization groups, anti-Assad groups. So, of course, systematically, I mean, the UN is being ineffective. Why? Because we have a conflict which involves two different perspectives, two different points of uh, conflict, uh, two different conflicting groups. Both of them are being supported either by the states, the United States, and the, the European countries as a whole, any other side, Russia, uh, which does not want the Syrian regime to be threatened, to collapse in any sort of. So, of course, they, they veto uh, each and every resolution that is being... Uh, proposed by the United Nations. That's why the UN is being ineffective. And if if the UN are shown to be so effective currently whilst the conflict's going on, what are your what do you think about the prospects for when or if the conflict eventually eventually ends? Purely in terms of A in terms of reconstruction and B in terms of the return of Syrian refugees who are spread out across the world and in neighboring countries, the the return to those refugees to Syria. Mm -hmm. That's uh that's a very important and interesting question. First, because you mentioned, so there's two things that you mentioned in your question. The first one is the refugees, the refugee issues. The second one is the word that you use, reconstruction. That is very important. So we'll start with the, um, the refugees. Uh, we have to repeat this over and over, but we are talking here about roughly 6 million refugees uh, and or displaced people. So um, this is approximately one third, even 50, and close to 50% of what was, uh, what was Syria before, uh, before the, the war. That's roughly 50% yeah, of the country's pure population. So all those refugees are um, displaced and, and they are actually currently, sorry, in, uh, in, in neighboring countries, Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon, but also Europe, for some of them. So, um, the first thing when it comes to those refugees uh, is that for the majority of them, for the majority of the refugees we interviewed, they want to come back. Of course, Syria is considered as their own country, and this is... Uh, concern of at least giving the situation in which they live in certain countries, especially Lebanon, for example, uh, they of course uh, plan to, 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 to go back to their own country. I give you a very, I mean, the situation of the refugees in Lebanon is very, very painful, it's very difficult. Uh, in January 2018, 10 people died while trying to cross uh, the, the, the border in the Masna region, so they froze to death. Uh, so that's one of the let's say, perhaps thousands of examples of, of... So they want to go back to their country. It's perhaps not the case for all the Syrian refugees that made it to Europe. So in Europe, for the parents, let's say the generation of the parents, those people who, have, who are more than 25 or 30 years old, and even more than this, uh, they made it to Europe, and now they realize that they... they, they, they quickly understood that the situation in Syria probably was going to remain the same for years. And so they finally secured uh, security for their children. So they want, some of them, of course, they want to return because of the memory of the, 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 the memory of their country, their home, etc. But they also realized that they secured something for the children, which is more important than only, you know, the memory of, of, of the country. That's a specific case for the European, the Syrian refugees in Europe. For the one living in Lebanon, Turkey, and other neighboring countries, of course, they want to they want to go back, but they don't want to go back uh, before. I mean, until situation is is fixed. And for them, for the majority of them, that is to say, the one who left the areas uh, that were targeted by the Syrian regime, they want to go back uh, and. They, they, they want to wait for the fall of the regime, so they, they, they won't come back, they won't go back before the regime, or at least Bashar Assad, that is to say the personification of the regime, lives. Uh, so that's the, the first thing. The second thing is on the, the, the practical aspect of it. The return of the refugees uh, will have to be made by United Nations, the, the, the HCR, the High Commissioner for Refugees. But they can't allow refugees to return unless they have guarantees that the situation will be fixed, because otherwise they will meet, you know, doing um, back and forth trips, uh, refugees who could go to Syria, but then who will be 
resent back to Lebanon or to Turkey. Or that's a very, very complex process. And even the United Nations, the HCR, which is technically calling for the return of the refugees, do not want them to return now. Because that will be purely technical, on the pure technical aspect, that will be complicated. That's the first thing. Uh, then uh, the element that you mentioned, the prospect for reconstruction. It's important. Of course, we all want reconstruction. We want the country to, to be safe. We want the country to, to engage in you know, uh, peaceful negotiation. And, but the word reconstruction is important because it is part of the vocabulary be being used by the regime. So the, the vocabulary being used by the regime, it's a form of misleading rhetoric, I will say. Um, because as the regime regained territory, it started uh, disseminating the idea that uh, now it's time for reconstruction. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. We regain territories. And of course, they play on this idea of not legitimacy, but at least legality of the regime. They regain territories. So now they're ready to reconstruct. And there is no other problem than this. The problem where, and we'll come back perhaps on the way the regime described its enemies, or at least described the revolution and the, the, the opposing groups, the, 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 the mobilizing groups. But uh, for them, the problem was about those groups uh, taking over territories. Now that the territories are being reconquered by the regime, that's the end of the war. So there is no other problem, no other problem of legitimacy of the, the role and the, the, the representation of the Syrian regime by the Syrian population, namely the six, seven, eight million people who left their, their home or the region uh, that were uh, attacked by, by the regime or there were uh, the, the early um, territories of the, of the revolution. So, of course, there are behind this some economic factors, the fact that uh, if there is a form of reconstruction following the, the regime rhetoric, um, that will be the contracts will be given priority to to Russia, Russia, Iran, and China, etc. We're talking about billions of billions of dollars of uh, investment for uh, for this. Um, so that's that's basically. I think that the, the point about rhetoric is actually very important. So you talk about the rhetoric of the Syrian regime and how that influences the rhetoric of war, uh, the rhetoric of war. Do you think the language that's kind of seemingly used by all the actors in the conflict currently about wanting to combat and fight IS? Do you think that's been influenced in some way by the Syrian regime's own rhetoric? Or I mean, in some senses, to me, it feels as though the idea of a war against ISIS is a bit like this spectre in the conflict that everyone's using it and exploiting it for their own means to kind of um, to carry out their own aims in the country. Yes, yes, definitely. I just when we talk about the regime rhetoric, it's really important to do uh, quite important historical background here. Uh, so first, before this, um, just keep in mind that the regime discourse is largely aimed at the uh, international community and especially at Western communities. Uh, on the domestic aspect of it, Syrians know about the, 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 the sorry about, about the regime uh, strategies, about the way the regime acts. About they've been living under the Syrian. Uh, regime for the past 40 years. So they know what is the rules. And the rules are very, very simple when it comes to the Syrian regime. It's either you are with us or against us. If you are against us, you have to die. Uh, so they know this and the Syrian are accustomed to this. So either some of them, of course, are opposed to this, that's the Syrian revolution and all the dynamics that follow post-2011 revolution, or the people who are supporters of the regime. They also exist. We have to mention them. Because if we uh, pretend to, I mean, if you pretend they don't exist or they are in the minority, they do exist. And we, we perhaps we'll have to talk about them later on. Uh, because I think one of the big mistakes of uh, um, European observers, not only European, of course, but also, uh, I mean, generally speaking, the international community was to pretend that they didn't, did not exist. Anyway, let's go back to the, the rhetoric. <clears throat> the regime was very, very, very clever from the beginning of the revolution onwards. In 2011, when the revolution started, when the dynamics uh, started to erupt the same way they did in Tunisia and, and in Egypt and, and in Libya, um, especially with the, the events in, in Daraa, 
the, the regime started to portray those revolutionaries or those social groups that they could not really properly identify, they started to talk about Isabat. That is to say, uh, that is a term that was extensively used and which has a very, very important um, trajectory in Syria. It's a reference to the 1919, 1921 and 1924 revolutions. So around the revolution was revolving some kind of armed groups who tried to, uh, to either oppose the revolution or sometimes to, uh, to threaten the, the presence of the mandatory powers, etc. Et they were difficult to define, but they were in the collective certain, certain collective memory they was they were perceived as a threat you know some bandits so when the revolution started the strategy of the regime was to refer in the collective memory of the certain people to those isabat uh, armed groups uh, that were here to destabilize the country and that were here to largely destabilize um, the uh, not the regime but the country itself at the same time March and April 2011, the regime started to, uh, some uh, soldiers, you know, conscripts in the barracks where uh, they were, uh, they, they could not get out of the barracks and they were told that there was an, in, an ongoing Israeli-Turkish invasion of the country. So first they assimilated the revolutionaries to those Isabat, funded and supported by both Israel and Turkey two historical um, enemies of, uh, of Syria in 2011 in the rhetoric of the, the Syrian regime. Uh, that was the first step. The second step was started to assimilate those groups and that took a bit a bit of a time to like six or seven months um, uh, in parallel to the militarization of the revolution. They started to assimilate those groups to um, for some of them, not all of them, to uh, Salafist, or uh, they started to use the word, so they had two different ways of describing them, for the Syrians and for Western uh, authorities, Western uh, international community. For the Syrians, they started to refer to those groups as Majmu'at al-Takfiriyeh, so terrorist groups, Takfiri groups, that is to say, Islamist. But as uh, Syrian will perceive them, of course, they never use the, the term Mujahideen, which is meliorative, which is a positive aspect, which has a positive aspect. And in parallel, they started to use the term terrorist, Islamic terrorist, uh, for the international community, explaining that, of course, there was no such thing as a revolution, but an internal plot uh, funded by multiple countries around, that is to say Israel, of course, but also the Gulf countries, sometimes America, France, UK, etc., to destabilize the country and more, most likely to destabilize the anti-imperialist um, uh, anti uh, strategy or the anti-imperialist uh, group that was the one of Syria, Iran, and Hezbollah. That is to say, the axis of resistance, that's the refusal of... Uh, um, so, the idea was that the revolution was not a revolution per se, but was a plot uh, created, fostered by foreign enemies using internal, internal vectors. So that discourse remained. It remained the same as remained for the past seven years, it evolved differently, then it was internalized by some other groups like Hezbollah. Hezbollah took a long time to internalize this discourse. It took them two years to, to, to use it as their own. But what was interesting and actually quite clever was the strategy of the Syrian regime was that they never, never uh, acknowledged that they were targeting their own people. Uh, the people they were targeting like Qaddafi, for example. Qaddafi made it very clear from the very first day he was going to kill his own population. Uh, Bashar al-Assad never did this. Bashar al-Assad explained that he was uh, engaging his own force against terrorists funded by uh, Israel, funded by Turkey, funded by uh, the Gulf. Um, in, and it was all of this was only a plot in order to destabilize the axis of the resistance. Never the regime mentioned the possibility of killing its own people. And this is where they actually, um, they had a good strategy. Uh, that strategy, not, of course, did not echo in Syria, because from the very first day of the revolution, the two groups that were going to support or not 
the regime were already constituted, but it worked in Europe. It, it worked with uh, the international community, and it started to impregnate the discourse of political actors in Europe, mainly extreme right and extreme left as well. Anyway, yeah. And so if we're thinking about the constitution of those two groups, so either supporters of Assad, who you, who you say is, it's important not to forget them, and those against Assad, just thinking about that in terms of a, the possibility of a political process mm -hmm. to remove Assad after power, so especially Secretary of State um, Rex Tillerson for the US, something he constantly refers to, and is something that's constantly also referred to by actors within Europe, the idea that Assad could be removed possibly by a political process after the war finishes. I mean, do you think that's realistic at all? Actually, that could be. That now we realize that, uh, of course, when it comes to the people who are supporting Assad, and they exist, they exist in Damascus, they exist in Papille, they exist in Halep, they exist everywhere in the country. Uh, we can't, in, I mean, we can't establish a precise you know, percentage, of, but still they exist. For them, um, as long as the regime or as long as the regime is maintained the same way it is and as long as their life and their economic and political interests are not being threatened they don't really care if it's Bashar or someone else or any other of the the the, yeah, the, the old guard of the Syrian regime uh, on the other side when it comes to the opposition they are let's say, we have to centralize here, but the pro and anti-Bashar, when it comes to the anti-Bashar, that is to say the majority of the Syrian population, actually, uh, of course, they, um, some of them, majority of them, understood and acknowledged that the revolution is over. They won't uh, obtain what they wanted, that is to say, freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, uh, the possibility of living, uh, you know, outside the scope of an authoritarian regime, etc. But... Uh, over the past years, they literally polarized on the figure of Bashar al-Assad. Is for them uh, the the incarnated evil is the one that perhaps, if Bashar slowly you know withdraw, following a long-term negotiation with the Russian, with Iran, with America, etc., maybe that could be at least one solution. You know, just get getting rid of the heads Bashar al-Assad, some of the important figures around them. And unfortunately, and, and I, I don't want to be cynical, but um, this, is, this is the only prospect that we have. Even if the regime, the structure of the state does not change, and this is something that we can't wish because we, we want people to live, not of course under the umbrella of an authoritarian state, but at least Bashar probably uh, will have left. So this is, here I'm, I'm giving you prospect for the opposition of course it's not what I want I'm not a uh, I'm not a political actor I'm just a researcher trying to explain stuff but this is how I perceive the way it could be a settlement only by removing the head that's okay and how, how do you see the role of the the Kurds in the conflict and also maybe the prospects of Kurdish independence I think maybe before um, the vote on Kurdish independence last year which was viewed quite negatively, I think, by the international community or occurring at an inopportune time. How, how do you see, do you think Kurdish independence is something that's a possibility for the future too? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. You, really, when we consider, the, let's say, generally speaking, Kurds, uh, of course, we have to distinguish between the, yeah. at least first, between the Iraqi and the Syrian war. Yeah, no, uh, clearly, they don't pursue the same interest. And as you said first, you mentioned the, the Iraqi war. The Kurdish referendum was in, in Iraq, in Erbil. I think they took everyone by surprise. You know, they, they, Barzani, he promised that he was going to do a referendum. Everyone knew about it, but no one really, I think, thought that he was going to do it, actually. So he did it. Uh, he did it. Um, the, the problem is that no one, literally no one, that is to say, United States of America, Europe, entire Europe, no exception, uh, Israel, uh, which has very, very close tie with uh, the Iraqi Kurds, uh, Iran as well, uh, as well with the, the, the eastern part of the Kurdistan, um, um, Russia, there is absolutely, you won't find a single actor which has an interest in Kurdish independence. And we're talking here only about Iraq. Uh, so when it comes to the Iraqi Kurds, they will deal with it. They will continue the way they... 
they did for the past years. They have negotiated with Baghdad. It's been 20 years now, almost 20 years. They've negotiated special status. Um, of course, there are some complexities in you know the attribution of the budget, the, the revenues of the oil, etc., etc. But at the end, they managed to secure proper territory with their own administration, with an army, of course, uh, which is quite effective, which dealt quite effectively with Daesh in, in, in the, the in the northwestern part of uh, of the, the Kurdish territory recently, Sinjar, etc. Uh, they also participated to the last operation in Mosul, of course, in Kobane. Uh, yeah, by the way, you mentioned Kobane, but um, the, 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 it's the Iraqi Kurdish army which participated to, uh, to the, the reconquest of Kobane. Okay. And that's the other way around. That's the PKK and the YPG, that's to say the Syrian Kurds, who, who participated in the, in the reconquest of Sinjar. Because... Uh, for different reasons, implying the fact that the Iraqi government did not want the Iraqi Kurds to invade Sinjar again, also because uh, the Kurdish army in 2014 literally abandoned Sinjar to, to Daesh. Anyway, um, when it comes to Syria, that's even less probable to have an independence. I mean, how now, as you've seen, probably the Syrian regime uh, secured an agreement with the Kurds allowing them to enter Afrin which is to say that at the end, um, the Syrian regime, the objective of the Syrian regime is very clear, that is to say the, re the reconquest, the effective reconquest of the entire territory, including the Kurds and perhaps a negotiation, some negotiation to find a deal in which they will have a part of autonomy or independence in the, in the, the reconquered, uh, Syria, newly reconquered Syria. So that's interesting. So you see, so the current Syrian government's support for the Kurds in Afrin, you see, you think that in future that will actually, that will kind of outgrow just support and it will, it, its eventual goal is to retake that, retake that. Yes, area. yes. Oh, they will do this through negotiations, of course, because okay. I, I don't see them doing this militarily speaking, because they also have to oppose the presence of the Turks, mm -hmm. which is very important to them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what we have to, we have to be cautious with something is that what we perceive that uh, as being our allies at you know one moment in history can become the opposite a few years after. Um, the once the objective of the you know I'll give you a specific example. It's interesting to see the representation of the Kurds in in, in Europe. So when you look at the Kurds, they are of course the heroes, brave, fighting Daesh, and with. The, interesting model for the society, which is partly true, actually. They have an interesting model, equality between men and women. Many ideas based on Murray, Murray Bookchin's work. Yes, yeah. exactly. So that's, that's interesting. But in the end, but, so for example, when we look at the perception of European volunteers when to fight alongside the Kurds, it's interesting because for the past, for the first two years of Daesh activity in the region, they were perceived as heroes, people went there to, to fight um, for a cause. By the way, that cause was a mercenary cause, and people who basically followed the same path than Daesh activists, when they're fighting for another state, another, another uh, ideology or anything, which is technically forbidden by all European laws. Uh, technically, not all of them, but anyway. For example, in France, if you're not being paid, you're not a mercenary, so you're technically, you're low to go there. In America, that's taken very seriously. You can't fight for anything else than the United States of America, the American flag. Anyway, uh, so they were fighting Daesh because at the time, for the PKK and YPG, that was the first objective, of course, reconquering their own, what they perceived as being their own territory. But now, the dynamics have changed. And now they are engaging against, they are engaged against the Turks. Turks, which is, remember, whatever we think of Turkey, Turkey is a NATO country. Uh, and when we interview and we try to read about those European volunteers, some of them said, okay, my objective was to fight against Daesh. It's over, I can go back to Europe now. So that's understandable. But some others say Daesh was only part of a broader objective, which was implementing the revolution in the Middle East and maybe also in Europe. So implementing the revolution in the Middle East and also in Europe means at one point perhaps engaging against my own country at one moment of time. So we have, I give you the example of France, 
uh, we have an ongoing conflict about an airport, the airport of Notre-Dame-des-Landes in, in Nantes. And we realized, we received photos a few months ago, that some activists of the autonomous zone, which is a militarily constituted zone in close to Nantes, fighting against the, the construction of an airport, uh, mainly extreme left uh, activists, some of them were fighting alongside the Kurds. So they fought Daesh, but now the prospect or the objective is to implement and to export the revolution, and if needed, if necessary, to fight against France. So, perspective, perception, realities, they always changed, and that's the case with the Kurds. People were their, our allies a few years ago, or right now can become our enemies later. There's something which is really important. Anyway. And f for the Kurds, do you think... How do the Kurds avoid becoming occupation forces in areas of Syria that they've liberated? But they behave like, as occupational forces, that's what they do. So first, they, um, of course, and the first thing was that when they started the, uh, to, to expel Daesh from their territory that they conquered, and they did it, I mean, that's the Kurds who mm. did it, mm. that's important to recall. They did it with the help of the international coalition, of course. Uh, they, you know, created this uh, structure, the SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces. The idea was to say that, of course, it was not a Kurdish-led organization. Uh, it was constituted of Arabs and Kurds. That is true, but majority of the people are Kurds. And, of course, the structure of decision is mainly Kurd, Kurdish. Um, the, the, the very big debates uh, for people who are exploring or investigating the YPG is where exactly is the decision being made? Uh, is it locally? Is it certain actors is it in consultation with local people, etc.? Uh, or is it in the Kandil Mountain in Iraq where the PKK has one of its most important command structure? Mm. Uh, clearly nobody knows. But the idea is that, largely speaking, all the operation led by the SDF, which is this umbrella for uh, the Kurdish movement, they are actually taken by the PKK. Uh, by the way, uh, recently the, even the CIA put uh, the YBS and part of the YPG on the terrorist list. Uh, so that's something which is important. When they invaded Arab-controlled territories, or territories perceived as Arabs, uh, for, for example, such as Membish in, in uh, July 2016, uh, of course, they automatically created created resentment from the local population uh, because the first thing that they did was actually implementing their own structure of decision, uh, local governance largely based on uh, Kurdish um, Kurdish um, uh, decision, and also they started to reconfigure. The first thing that they did was started to reconfigure uh, the cadastre. That is to say, you know the the um, uh, the allocation of houses locally. Um, in French, we use the word cadastre. Uh, so, yeah, of course, they have a political project, and this political project is largely being resented by the local Sunni population. Um, for a lot of them, of course, the Kurds are not Bashar al-Assad, but they could be eventually. Mm. So, this is all the same all the time. It's the same all the time. We don't solve problems. We only contribute to create new ones. Mm. And I'm not saying that, just, I don't want to, because the Kurds were, of course, quite efficient in fighting Daesh. They actually did it by losing a lot of their own uh, people. And they, but of course... I think that's potentially why the question of independence is so, mm -hmm. is so important, because it's maybe seen as something that they've deserved, like come to deserve. Or... Yes. It's something which... Uh, well, that at least seems to be the kind of language around it. Yes, they, they, they will deserve it, yes. But in the end, behind this, I mean, that's something which has been ongoing for the past 100 years. Yeah, I mean, technically. yeah, yeah. But what is behind this, they, they will, the international community, the Kurds, they will face the wall of uh, a reality, which is international law. And mm. once you started to literally encroach of this international law, that's the end of it. You destroy the entire structure on which the Westphalian system lies. So the independence, 
So you um, don't even think that there's a possibility that you could have the same kind of structures in um, Kurdish areas of Syria that you currently have in Iraq. So you talked about a regional government in Iraq. With yes, Pakistan. I mean, in Iraq, it's a uh, Kurdish regional government. So that's a structure within the structure. They have autonomy. They, of course, they don't have independence. They negotiate with... That, yeah. that could be the same prospect for Syria and the Kurds, yes. Now it depends on what exactly do the Kurds want at the end. Yeah. Um, just to kind of go back a bit and return, <laughs> return to the issue of refugees. I was in Lebanon last year and one of the things that I was kind of very struck by is that if we think the situation of refugees is precarious in Europe or precarious um, in other countries in, in the region, I think in, in Lebanon it's, it's a particularly pertinent question. So in, in Lebanon... Um, there seems to be a real, we could go even go as far as saying fear um, among the population, because we have to remember as well that uh, many of the Syrian refugees who are currently in Lebanon are, A, they're, they're, not, um, they're not given citizenship by the state, and B, they represent a kind of a very large uh, religious minority, although you know, there's the potential there that it could become a majority if they were given citizenship. So, I, I mean, do you think that they'll return to Syria? Do you think there's a possibility? So in Jordan currently, we have the compact model where there's um, investment to try and help refugees enter the workforce. Do you think that's a possibility? Or do you see the the same kind of fear that, that I've, I've described? Or no, the, the, the Lebanese situation is very, very particular. So first we have to look at people who are listening, Lebanon is basically hosting, we're coming between one and two million refugees. One million is the number for registered people, that is to say people who actually went to the FCR and registered themselves. Two million is the most likely figures. That is to say, if we consider that Lebanon is worth is 6,000 million people, we don't know anything about this. Um, the last census was 1932, so we, we have no idea, but technically it's 6 million people. Uh, that, that is to say one-third of the population. So we have to imagine France having to host 20 million people. Just to say that one of the reasons why the last census was so long ago is because there is such a fear about you know, actually Change highlighting the demographic, demographic balance, changes and, and like maintaining that dem demographic balance. Sorry, so that, that's something which is quite important for all the communities in Lebanon and not only Christians, Shia and Doruz, but also Sunni, actually. Uh, so first we have this, uh, there's one word that we have to explain to, uh, to the people, is that the word, very, very important meaning for the Lebanese, Tautin. Tautin is the notion of, you know, implementation, settlement. So Tautin was all the debates about the possibility for Palestinian refugees after 1948, 47, 48, 49, after this, to settle in Lebanon and basically to stay there after they realized, I mean, after Arab countries and the Palestinian 1967, after the Six Day War, realized that there could perhaps be no return to the Palestinian. The idea was that perhaps they could be um, nationalized or gain the, the citizenship. Of course, in Lebanon, that is a very particular meaning as the, the, the repartition of power is based on the sectarian origin of the, the people. So, um, the, 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 for example, the president of the Republic is a, a Christian Maronite, prime minister will be a Sunni, um, the, um, the president of the National Assembly will be a Shia, etc. Et so, any change in the demographic reality of the country will impact, of course, on the repartition of position among the actors. And, of course, when it comes to the, the Syrian refugees, the overwhelming majority of them are Sunnis. That will dramatically change the nature of them. And also, that's the representation. Uh, when you talk to Lebanese people today, they, they feel overwhelmed by the number of refugees. That's the discourse in Beirut. That's the discourse usually in places where you don't see so many refugees. In Beirut, there are a lot of them, of course. You go to Hamra Street, you will see a lot of children, etc. But they say that with so many people, so many foreign people in our country, we, we, there is no such thing as Lebanon anymore. The country does not exist. And representation are important. The way people perceive this is important. Then second thing is that uh, majority of the Syrian people they don't want to stay in Lebanon. They want to go back to their country, especially, as I said earlier, the one who are living in the neighboring countries. So, um, 
Lebanon, I mean, the Lebanese people feel threatened by the refugees to a certain extent. Uh, it's understandable as well. It's understandable. Uh, what is not understandable is the way political actors utilize this and instrumentalize that in their discourse. That is, of course, the case for all of them without exception, Nasrallah, for Hezbollah, Hariri, before he resigned, everyone. They used it, they instrumentalized it as a way to catalyze fear and as a way to... That's unacceptable, of course. What is interesting, though, is to observe to observe the way on the local level people deal with this. You take the case of Qa'a, for example, which is a city neighboring Syria, Qusayr. Uh, it's largely it's a Christian city, 12,000 inhabitants approximately were struck by uh, multiple Daesh uh, bombings in 2015 and 2016 that has to deal that had to deal with a very, very complicated situation at the border. And they have around them 80,000 Syrian refugees, Sunni, for the majority of them. And they deal with it on a daily basis. They have to deal with this. So uh, they organize different activities, they organize structures to, to deal with the influx of, of, of the refugees, to try to register them. They host them in local schools, local facilities. Of course, the relation, the, the daily interaction are really, really tough, really complicated. But in the end, they managed to do something before, of course, they returned to their, to their country, which is what everybody wants. So, once again, you have this amazing distortion or gap between public discourses in Beirut and the reality of, you know, refugee management in the border regions, and that's important. I guess the, the question about public discourse is also quite relevant to, to Europe maybe considering um, public discourse around refugees, how do you think that's changed over the course of um, the war in Syria since 2011? I mean, there have been flashpoints. Um, so when Alan Kurdi's body washed up on the beach, there seemed to be a, a huge outcry and there was general mobilization. And then kind of say more recently, there's been fatigue around the welcoming of refugees. You saw Angela, Angela Merkel's decision in 2015, um, so maybe not mapping the how things have changed, but how you see it now and how you think it will carry on um, developing? Uh, I, Of course, the situation are different given the, when it comes to, for example, if you want to compare France and Germany. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, we can largely consider that there is a single representation perception of those refugees that the majority of them, uh, it's the same thing in Lebanon. You know, on, on the local aspect, people deal with this. There are some attempts, local attempts, to integrate uh, people who come from a war-torn country. The um, majority of them struggle to learn the language in the country in which they, they now live. But the public discourse, of course, polarizes on all the uh, negative consequences of the presence of refugees. Um, I, I think it's even stronger in Germany. Uh, it's even stronger in Germany. Uh, but it's a general trend. It's a general trend, it's a global trend that is usually connected to the rise of far right and also far left, by the way, mm. discourses, mm. Uh, which, of course, uh, essentialize the figure of the other, essentialize the figure of the refugee and try to describe it as something which is threatening for European identity. Uh, Actually, so you, you've, you've brought up the, the, the far left a few times now in the conversation. I was wondering if you just give us an example, because there is an overwhelming tendency to focus on far right, right far yes. right movements in Pegida uh, in Germany. It's, I think it's a mistake to, mm. to polarize on the far right. The far right, it's, uh, we know about it. We know the process, we know the mechanism, and we can observe the way it is dealing with issues and the way it is reconfiguring itself. Um, the far left also is, I think it's antagonized between two different uh, parts. Uh, there is one part which I will call uh, the anti-imperialist far left. This is the one which has been strongly involved in a pro-Syrian regime discourse, very close to Russia, very close to, to Iran, and, and with very strong ties to the Syrian regime and the idea that um, there should be, um, I mean, with very close ties to the Syrian regime. But this branch of the extreme left, which actually uh, they engage, they actually 
physically fought in 2011, 2012, 2013 in France, in Germany, in, uh, in Italy as well, over, over the significance of the Syrian revolution. Um, but this anti-imperialist um, branch, which is personified by some people, for example, in La France Insoumise, which is the Mélenchon movement, mm. movement uh, they, um, they also... Um, they reconfigured a particle of theory around the idea of nationalism. Nationalism is being far more important today than it was 20 years ago. Uh, we have theoricians like Chantal Mouffe, for example, who literally engage in the idea that the extreme left should reconcentrate on the domestic aspect and should reconfigure, should reconcentrate on nationalism. Uh, this is very important because that led to a discourse which, for some of them, not all of them, different branches, but for some of them went to a strong antagonism to student refugees and to anything that could threaten national identity as well. Uh, so that's very, very important to, to mention this. Um, there is an ongoing conflict in the extreme left uh, over the nature of the Syrian regime, over the revolution in Syria, over the presence of Syrian refugees or refugees largely speaking in Europe, etc. etc. That's really important. And just to kind of move things on, so you're a you're a researcher. What do you what do you think it means in this kind of punditocracy era where everyone has an opinion, where experts have begin to be begun to be distrusted? Especially, we saw quite a lot of the rhetoric during the referendum campaign here in the UK was centered around the idea of experts not being worth their, not being worth their salt anymore. What do you think it actually means to be uh, specialized and dedicated? Um, a dedicated researcher in a particular field. So how do how do you kind of define your own legitimacy in in, in the fields that you you study and you think that matter? Yeah, first, usually, for example, it's a personal example, but I usually don't answer to interviews. And when when uh, you know when the media contact me, I, I just I don't have time for this. I, for example, in that case, in your case, that's Oxford. Uh, I know how the students work and how how they do stuff, and so you can realize that's something serious. But then, for example, I give you so that you can understand. Uh, when you are an expert, today, uh, media channels, uh, they need experts, they need people. Why? Because there's diversity of channels, diversity of uh, channels through which they can express ideas 24 7, uh, etc. So they need people. Uh, on a constant daily basis, they will send you emails, they will send you texts uh, because they want you to react on one problem. On Monday, I can have a text asking me to talk about the student refugees. Okay, why not? On Tuesday, I can have a text asking me to comment on something related to Jerusalem. Yes, how mm. being a researcher for me, it's uh, it's first it takes time to to read, to go on the field. You have to interview people. I try to go at least two three months a year in the field to interview people, to spend time there, to write that and also to teach, which is super important. So when all of this is being done, at the end, you don't have time to, you know, to, 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 to do the tour of all the channels and to, to uh, so that's something which is quite difficult. Uh, the, the other thing is that the legitimacy is the one you will build on a very, very specific subject. Uh, today, you mentioned it, I think, but my PhD was in the Shiba farms. I spent years then researching the, the the, the, the field, discussing with people, settling Farshuba, Shaba, and all the villages and everything. And even after this, I, I felt like I, I, I didn't know anything about my subject. You know, it's complicated. You have different actors, different interests, and the possibility now of having hundreds of thousands of sources. Of, if you want to have at least just a hint of legitimacy of something in something, you you have to, to spend years working on this. So. Of course, with the rise of the new media, the 24-7 channels, etc., you have uh, people who emerged as specialists, although they don't know anything about it. They did not time, take the time to learn the language, did not time to... How would we perceive someone who claimed to be a specialist of American society who does not barely speak English? How would we consider this? Um, that, that is impossible, but that's being tolerated or accepted for non-European or non of other countries, let's say. So you can be a specialist of Pakistan if you spend two days there and barely know a word of, of Urdu, or that's that's not that's not acceptable. Um, 
you also have the fact that um, yeah, it's 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 complicated. So I, I think that the, the you know I I think researchers must they they have to remain traditional in the sense of the term that they have to publish in peer review uh, journals. They have to take sometimes months, even years, to to finish an article, and then they have to disseminate disseminate their work. You know, going to uh, public conferences, lecturing people, etc. But the media today is a bit dangerous, I think. I think one of the things that you speak, you're an Arabic speaker. Mm. So it'd be interesting to hear, and perhaps the listeners as well, so many people who are interested in going into the field of international relations, um, how you think whether whether decision was based to take up Arabic and how you think that's kind of affected your view on, especially the situation in Lebanon and Syria or affected your research. Uh, I mean... Speaking Arabic was a key to, to the research. It's first, it's about what the people will tell you, of course. It's also about they won't, what they won't tell you, what you will overhear. You know, that's something which is important. But um, what I, for example, if you want to do a PhD today in France, Sciences Po here in Oxford as well, uh, no one will accept you if you you won't be accepted if you don't speak the language, right? because people realize it was important to to be able to engage with. People, political actors, the commoners, etc. Uh, it changed everything. It changes everything. Of course, it was not the case uh, for some some subject 20, 30 years ago. People did not have to learn the language, but but now it's it's mandatory. You have to do this, and I can't encourage. I mean, of course, I have to encourage students to learn the language, to take the necessary time to 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 further the knowledge of this. Uh, it's 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 the key. And uh, if you don't want to feel stupid not <laughs> being capable of, you know, engaging with someone I mean, in any country, that's uh, if you, if you want to research the history of France and and UK relations, you have to learn French. That's you will be will be ridiculous otherwise. Uh, still, on the particular aspect of the Middle East, <clears throat> if you uh, if by any chance you don't speak French, it's 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 important first to learn it because if you want to engage with archives and everything. A lot of them are in French, but then you have to learn Arabic. It's 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 the, it's the key. Sorry. Okay, that's great. Um, I think with that, we'll we'll draw things to a close. Thank you very much for your time today. I think it's been a thank you wide ranging and really really fascinating interview. Um, and I mean, hopefully we might get a chance to either have you back in the future and see how things have changed. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm Adam Mazzarello. You've been listening to the Oxford International Relations Society Beacon podcast. Um, remember to take a listen on all our different platforms and check out the Facebook page as well. Thank you.